Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, you, and you, and you over there. Happy Thursday to everybody. What a nice crowd we have here today. Thank you for joining me. As you already know, this is the Last Symptom Podcast, and I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and the host of The Last Symptom. I'm curious to know how your week has been. Unfortunately, the nature of this audio show makes it impossible for you to tell me what you've been up to and what things have been happening in your life. But I have gotten several positive messages from some of you this week, and so it seems that at least for for some of you, things are going well, and you're feeling optimistic and lighter, and I'm very happy to hear those things. If in your particular circumstances, you are not feeling optimistic, and if things seem to be gloomy, I want to express my regret that you're going through difficult times. There's a quote from Dante's Inferno that says, there's no greater pain than to remember the good times during the bad times. And when I was slugging along in my, through my own gloomy, dark times in my own recovery, nothing could have expressed the agony that I was experiencing as well as that quote, there is no greater pain than to remember the good times during the bad times. If you hear a cricket, that is Norman. He's in my studio here. I think he's got his whole family here. And, uh, you know, he's uh, just become a, my mascot, I reckon. Also, I'd like to mention that uh, I am video recording this episode of the podcast again. So if you'd like to see that, of course, you can run over to thelastsymptom.com. Uh, or you can subscribe to the official YouTube channel, the, the official Last Symptom YouTube channel, and you just type in the Last Symptom within YouTube. Well, if you're feeling down, today's episode is meant to give you some encouragement, so I hope it achieves that objective and that it proves to be an episode that you refer back to often. Oh boy, Norman the Cricket is chatty tonight, very chatty, so uh, I guess we're just going to have to endure him. Anyway, as I was saying, this week has been fairly good for me. My now five-year-old daughter lost her first tooth this week, her one of her bottom teeth, and uh, so that was exciting, and she was excited, 
and now she's walking around looking like she got into a fight and somebody knocked her teeth out. Um, she also has this slight lisp, which is just really, really cute, and I'm trying to catch every moment that I get an opportunity to catch. So I told her the same thing that my grandpa told me. If you can resist the urge to stick your tongue in that spot where your tooth used to be, a gold tooth will grow there in its place. And she said, what? Are you serious? And she started getting really concerned because she thinks gold teeth look terrible. <laughs> so that little gag backfired on me pretty quick. And uh, I had to scramble to convince her that I was only joking. And then she didn't know what to believe. So finally I had to say, honey, either way, either way, whether I was joking or not, you're still going to be fine because nobody in the history of humankind has ever been able to resist sticking their tongue in that spot where their tooth used to be. What else have I been up to? Well, I have been working very hard recording hours upon hours of video. Then I've been spending many additional hours upon hours editing that video content. This is the last symptom fundamentals course pre-recorded that will be available very soon to everybody in the world. So the difference between this, this course, and the live version of the same course that I offer is that anybody who chooses to enroll and take advantage of this course will be able to take the course on their, on their own schedule at a discounted financial cost to them. You know, you, uh, when I do the live version of the course, uh, time zones and all that are, are always a big consideration. But for folks taking this uh, pre-recorded course, they're not going to have to worry about that. Not having a live classroom full of other participants also changes the nature of it a bit. But it, it's still going to be an incredibly beneficial experience for, for so many people. And like I say, I'm, I'm offering that at a discounted financial cost for those who take the pre-recorded course. But also, this, uh, this opportunity is going to go a long way and help keeping the last symptom financially supported, which will allow me to spend more time on additional projects and offerings. So be on the lookout for an official announcement soon about the last symptom fundamentals 40-hour pre-recorded online course and how you or somebody you care about can enroll, what the cost will be, where to find it, and uh, so on and so forth. It's an unusual amount of work for me at the moment on top of my other responsibilities, including this weekly show. But once I have it finished, I'm going to feel a great sense of accomplishment and satisfaction with the good that it's going to be able to do. By the way, I can't remember if I already mentioned it or not, but this episode of The Last Symptom, just like last week, is being recorded on video. Uh, so if you'd like to, to watch this presentation rather than just hear it, uh, you can do that over at thelastsymptom.com, or obviously you can subscribe to the official YouTube channel by searching for The Last Symptom. And this might be a good time for me to tell you about thelastsymptom.com, my official website, full free resources, 
And that's at thelastsymptom.com, where the first announcement will be made about The Last Symptom Fundamentals pre-recorded course when it is available. If you get a hankering to make a donation to support my overall body of work with The Last Symptom, you can do that at thelastsymptom.com. For those of you who have donated this past week, either through a one-time donation or through a recurring donation, I thank you very, very much. You've made this show that you're listening to this week possible. If you'd like to schedule a phone conversation with me or sponsor a call with me for somebody under financial hardship, you can do that at thelastsymptom.com. If you'd like to schedule a Zoom meeting with me, you can do that now also at thelastsymptom.com. Somebody recently remarked to me about how nice it must feel when I get positive, flattering comments from people about how much they appreciate my work with The Last Symptom. And you know what? Yes, I do enjoy this sort of feedback very much. It's a lot better than the alternative, the hate mail that I sometimes get. And I try to use these sorts of exciting, positive testimonials in my work as a way to encourage others that real growth and change is possible for them too. As for the complimentary nature of these things, I, I don't get too caught up thinking about how wonderful this makes me. Uh, nor do I use the praise as an excuse to fuel some sense of greatness about myself. The reality is that each person individually is responsible for every bit of insight and growth that he or she gets to experience. And each individual has to put, put in his or her own attention and effort for these things to be able to happen at all. So my part in this is very, very small. You know, I'm, the truth is I'm just a messenger, and uh, it's you folks who are doing all the, the hard work. Don't stop reaching out to me with your positive feedback. At the same time, if you praise me once, be sure to praise yourself five times or even ten times. That's how that should work. One other thing is that uh, over the years, there have been many who have praised my work with the last symptom in an initial outburst of enthusiasm and excitement at all the new things that they were discovering through my work. But then later they lost uh, interest or gradually gave up on recovery once the excitement of the information wore off. Or when they realized that recovery ain't always as easy as just sitting around waiting for things to happen. That it requires real exertion and effort many times on one's part. So... While I do love getting positive, exciting, flattering feedback, do you know what is most important to me and, and what makes me feel best of all? Results. I want you to be genuinely happy. I want you to achieve something similar to what I achieved. All the praise in the world does not matter if you don't keep following through and making progress. It can be tough because we might learn so much, but then after a time we 
we might believe we have these things licked when there might be more insights and puzzle pieces eluding us. Uh, I just heard about somebody recently who uh, is sold on most of the things that I teach, but is still hanging on to the concept that even as an unhealthy person with an emotional disorder, that this person can be an empath. And uh, you see, that would that would qualify as something that is eluding somebody because uh, it's at total odds with every every other puzzle piece that I teach you and explain to you here. It, it's fundamentally wrong. So it, it's not possible to gain insights on all the other things but still be holding on to that erroneous notion, right? So there may be, in your case, uh, insights or puzzle pieces that uh, are eluding you. And, you know, something else is that you will experience discouraging failures in this process of recovery. Uh, You know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you will experience discouraging failures along the process of authentic recovery. But then the question becomes, are you going to allow this to cause yourself to quit before you've reached the finish line, before you've grown to real emotional health? Or will you use the failure as a constructive opportunity to analyze the circumstances of that failure, make adjustments, and then leap even further ahead toward your objective. Remember, authentic recovery that is truly ridding yourself of emotional disorder, going from emotional unhealth to emotional health, is a purely individual accomplishment. And what this means is that nobody can do it for you. And whether you accomplish it or not in your own life depends entirely entirely on you, not 20% on me and then 80% on you, but 100% on you. So while I love the positive praise, and I hope it keeps coming, like I say, it's a lot better than the alternative. I always reserve my true excitement and pleasure for results. I observe and I guide and I hope But ultimately, I realize it's entirely out of my hands. It's entirely in your hands. I I watch the direction you choose to take yourself in. If you keep in mind that it's 100% your responsibility, that only you can do it, and you hold yourself to these reasonable expectations, and if you have your sight set on the real objective, you will get there, And then the real party can begin. So now let's move into the real encouragement portion of today's show. About two years ago, I said this to you. The striving for emotional health is an exercise in knowing when it is appropriate for us to cut ourselves some slack on the merit of the changes we are working hard to make. Well, nothing's changed. The striving for emotional health is an exercise 
in knowing when it is appropriate for us to cut ourselves some slack on the merit of the changes we've been hard, make, working hard to make. Here's another quote of mine from a while back. I said, remember, perfection is unattainable. You're never going to always say the right thing. You're never going to always perfectly resist your imperfections and do the right thing. You're never going to always react appropriately. So, sometimes, often, it's appropriate to just put an arm around yourself and say, you know what, buddy, that was just normal human imperfection there. It's okay. On December 24th, 2016, at 12.20 p.m., author J.K. Rowland posted the following tweet to Twitter, and I jotted it down because it's so powerfully true. She said, You never know what the future holds. Astonishing reversals of fortune happen every minute. And of course, you can pair that with another one of my quotes that is so simple, but incredibly profound at the same time. And that is, a lot can happen in a year. Here's a quote that uh, I don't know if you've heard or not. I don't know where it originates, but it's genius. It goes, the next best thing to solving a problem is not thinking about a problem. Why is that quote genius? Because it appropriately tells us to only worry about what we can affect or control. Do you see that the instant you realize something is entirely out of your control, then why worry about it? it? You know, the instant you realize something is entirely out of your control, then you should also realize that it's a total waste of time, energy, and attention. And that's the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority that you've heard me talk so much about. You know, I don't know nor could I understand all that you personally might be dealing with and feeling in your personal life. But I know that there was a time when I felt alone. I felt lost, and I felt uh, hopeless and scared. During the middle of my recovery, times were very gloomy and uncertain. In times like that, when I felt all alone and I felt as if nobody cared or was taking notice of my efforts or if anybody even appreciated what was in my heart, there's a little trick I used to perform. Would you like to know what that trick was? Well, it's, it's nothing too complicated, but what I would do is I would pull back. And what I mean by that is that I would try to use my imagination to pull back and observe myself as if from an aerial point of view. 
I wanted to see where I was in relation to everything else. And I wanted to get a, a mental image of what God was seeing when he looked down at me. And you know what? I would sometimes realize that there were other lonely people. There were other unsung heroes. There were other people who uh, were not being noticed. Wonderful things that they were doing were not being noticed. For some reason, this uh, pulling back, this uh, observing myself from a distance really helped me. It, it allowed me to see exactly where I'm, I was in relation to all the goings-on and the other people around me. It allowed me to feel like I was observing myself in a, in a more accurate context rather than having my nose right up on my life. Pulling back allowed me to see my life in a broader context. And once I was able to observe myself in a more, in a broader, more accurate context, as far as you know, my place in relation to everything else, I began to regain assurance to the fact that, that it don't matter if anybody ever knows or appreciates what I'm feeling or what's truly in my heart or whether my good deeds were ever going to be seen or appreciated by anybody else. It happens a trillion times a day to uh, billions and billions of people. It's not unique to me. And here's the point. The value was not ever in others noticing or celebrating these things about, about me, about my life. The value was that I was feeling, doing, or experiencing these things at all. So now I'd like to tell you the story, the true story, about a smudge of light in the night sky. When I was a kid, growing up in the middle of the Appalachian woods, it was my regular custom to always spend time at night outside in a regular spot of mine, looking up at the stars and the moon and having conversations with God, which would often go on for hours. You know, a typical conversation out there, looking up at the stars and the moon, was, was an hour. But very often, it would go two, three hours long. Probably seems uh, unbelievable to some of you listening. Maybe you're thinking, Lordy, how can somebody spend an hour talking to thin air like that? <laughs> well, you know, whether you, you believe in God or, or not is kind of irrelevant because uh, the, the true problem is that you live in a, in a reality that's saturated with distraction. But when your mind has never become addicted to and molded by such an environment of superficial distraction, an hour expressing your deepest thoughts and concerns and observations to somebody you consider a friend, whether you can see them or not, but who is all ears, is not such an unlikely or difficult thing. We did not have a VCR when I was growing up. Until much later in my life, uh, I was almost 20 by the time we got a VCR. We never had video games. 
we were allowed, while, as long as I was living at home, to watch an hour of television, uh, uh, 30 minutes, sorry, 30 minutes of television per day when we got home from school. But that was it. And I, you know, I, I thought it was barbaric at the time. But, uh, man, I look back on that. I really appreciate that. Because do you know what I would do uh, as a kid? I'd get home from school and I'd think, man, 30 minutes, that that's nothing. It's just enough for me to really start getting into some show or something. Uh, so why even bother? Why even do that to myself? I'm going to grab my fishing pole and I'm going to go fishing instead. Or I'm going to go down into the woods, going to explore some part of the woods I've never been in before. Or I'm going to build something or I'm going to draw or I'm going to create or you know, it was, uh, that was the effect that it had on me. So it was, that was kind of a genius thing that my parents did, choosing that half hour uh, window that I could watch television every day because it was so <laughs> meager that uh, often I'd go, why even bother? I'm just going to go fishing. And uh, so the, the school bus would pull up to my house and Boom, I'd explode off the bus and run for my fishing pole instead. And then I'd spend all night down at the pond and uh, learn about the natural world. So I had the custom of going out every night under the stars and studying the sky. One night, sometime around February or March of 1995... And you may be asking yourself, how can I remember what time of year it was? Well, I remember the, the weather. I remember it was freezing cold outside. There was snow still on the ground. And uh, I remember, you know, being bundled up in coats. But so it would have been sometime around February or March of 1995. I come home late at night, probably after hanging out with the Campbell twins. Ooh, I got to tell you about those girls at a future date. Anyhow, I got out of my car, as was my custom. I went out to my spot where I would look at the stars for a while. Remember, no street lights, nothing like that out in the woods. So uh, a really nice view of the, of the Milky Way, of the stars. And um, in, the, in colder temperatures, you get an even better look at the stars. But on that night, I, I got out of my car, coming back, I think, from the, visiting the, tw the Campbell twins, the girls I was seeing. And I went out to my spot to look up at the stars for a while. And uh, that's when I noticed what, what appeared to be an out-of-place star in the sky, a pinprick light, which I had never noticed before. So the nights kept passing, and each night I started looking for that star. After a while, I realized that uh, this star was gradually shifting its position in relation to other stars. Also, its intensity seemed to be evolving. Every night when I would look for that star, the intensity of it seemed to be evolving. It had a haze about it. And maybe you're realizing now what I realized back in 1996, that this tiny dot in the sky had to be 
a comet. You can imagine what a wonderful realization that was, Come, coming to the, that realization on my own, and then continuing to go out and look for it every night. Nothing in the news, nothing in the newspapers, nothing anywhere. Nobody talking about it. And here I had been watching it since it was a pinprick. On July 23rd, 1995, there was a huge announcement in all the news all around the, the world that two guys independently had discovered a new comet. That comet become named after them, Hill-Bopp Comet, my comet, the comet I had been watching for a long time, had been quote-unquote discovered by two guys named Hale and Bop. I'll never forget that. That coming up on the news. Oh, this is huge. There's been a new comet discovered. And I realized <laughs> that I had been watching that comet for months. Now, if you look up information on Hale-Bopp Comet, it will tell you that it did not become visible to the naked eye until May 1996, almost a full year after it first became visible to uh, telescopes. Regardless, I had not only noticed it with my naked eye, but I'd been keeping tabs on it with my naked eye for a long time before Hale and Bob's discovery. And I continued keeping tabs on it for all the length of its visit, which turned out to be a couple years, now almost three years, <clears throat> if you're taking into consideration folks who could have seen it with a telescope. But I didn't have a telescope. My star evolved to be much, much brighter and eventually this hazy ring of light that I told you I was beginning to perceive grew much, much more distinct. And by the summer of 1996, it had a full tail. Here are some questions that I had. How many other people, you know, normal folk, just like me, you know, farmers in Iowa or old-time hillbillies sitting up on their mountaintops, in rocking chairs, smoking a pipe and stargazing every night, also saw what I saw before Hellbop was officially discovered. See, when you live a life free of nighttime light pollution and looking at the stars every night is a regular custom and a pastime, you tend to be intimately familiar with the way everything up there is kind of laid out. You know, you might not be an astrology expert, but you know what the general layout of things is. And when something's out of place, it tends to get your attention. So how many common people were out in their hills and prairies seeing the same thing for whom it would never occur to share the things they see with the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams? Those are the folks who designate who has discovered some new uh, heavenly phenomena.
After all, this also never occurred to me, nor would it ever have occurred to me. My assumption was that surely scientists knew about this comet, and I couldn't possibly be seeing anything that they didn't already know about with all their fancy equipment. Furthermore, the reward for me was the experience itself, not in other people's acknowledgement of the experience I was having. That cannot be overstated. The reward was the experience itself, not in the acknowledgement of other people of the experience I was having. So how many other people, just like me, discovered the comet for real before it was officially discovered by the two guys it was finally named after? Have you ever wondered things like this yourself? How many little Michael Jacksons are there around the world who have every bit the amount of talent and skill or much more than Michael Jackson himself had, but whose circumstances will never lead to that talent being recognized and shared on a worldwide stage? How many Albert Einsteins are languishing, unappreciated, and unacknowledged on some farm down in Latin America or Cuba or in some rundown trailer in an overlooked, poverty-stricken holler in West Virginia? They'll never be recognized or celebrated because of why? Because nobody in their environment has the ability to recognize what that person truly possesses in their cultural or social circumstances. Maybe they're seen as an oddball and maybe they're even mocked and made fun of. This person may live his or her entire life working at a gas station. Imagine that all of the wonder and potential inside of them never being tapped into and dying with them completely unrecognized, completely uncelebrated. Do you think the greatest works of art the world has uh, designated as such are truly the greatest works of art that have ever been created? I don't think so. Not even for a second. For every amazing work of art that you have been told is great and amazing and that's hanging in the Louvre in Paris, just imagine the incredible works of art that have been drawn or painted or sculpted in some boy or girl's dilapidated bedroom, then crumpled up and thrown into a trash can. What does it take for the art that we recognize as amazing and, and the best in the world? What does it take for it to reach us, for, for it to be recognized, uh, highlighted, and um, announced to the world? Well, some of it's politics, ain't it? Knowing the right people, having the right contacts. But what if you don't know the right people? What if you don't have the right contacts? 
how many geniuses, for example, um, had to send their their book uh, outline to you know every publisher in the world before somebody said, "Okay, I like it." And then it turns out to be the one of the greatest classics of all time. What if that last that last person had not said, "Well, okay, I'll print it," because obviously, you know, the other five hundred publishers did not recognize it as genius in that moment. So how many how many of those manuscripts have disappeared into history, never having been recognized as genius? Imagine all the wonders throughout all of history, of all the history of human civilization that was never identified and designated as uh, a wonder or as anything special and shared with the masses. Think about how for every Mona Lisa, the paintings that have been lost to time, that only Aunt Sally got to see, And why were they lost to time? Because the person who painted them was not embraced into the inner circle of the lords and royalty and caretakers and designators of what qualifies as having value. Babe Ruth was the greatest baseball player of all time. Or was he? Isn't it more realistic to say that he's the greatest recognized baseball player of all time? Truly, has there never been a farm boy anywhere who had a greater natural skill but was never given an opportunity to share his natural talents with anybody? And why wasn't he? Because real life called on him to prioritize getting his farm chores done for the well-being of his family. And it would never in a million years have ever occurred to the baseball scouts to pull into that long driveway in Kansas just to ask if there were any baseball players there. And it would have never occurred to the family because uh, they're just trying to, to make ends meet. Poetry. You know, I'm a great lover of poetry. Do you think we've ever or will ever have the privilege of being exposed to the greatest poems that have ever been written? No, because they surely have not appeared in any books. They were most certainly the product of some completely uncelebrated person's work in a beat-up notebook or on a scrap of paper or on a scroll, which he or she then lost in a pile of bills and invoices or simply was not valued by family or friends and ended up in a bookcase or under the bed and disappeared to the sands of time. Think about that. For every celebrated person who is recognized for their talents, intelligence, skills, and craft, how many hundreds aren't and never will be? What, what are those unrecognized and un, undesignated geniuses doing? They're just trying to live. They're trying to pay their bills and survive life like the rest of us. They don't have the privilege of making a living from writing poems or painting pictures 
or sharing their thought experiments. They actually have to go to the coal mine every day or work out in a field in the sun or stand on an assembly line. For them, just like the stargazers on their front porches smoking their pipes and worrying about whether they'll get their crops planted in favorable weather, the reward is in the experience itself. It, you know, the, the guy drawing the incredible line drawn in his bedroom that would put Picasso to shame, the reward for him is in the experience himself, itself. In having made the drawing, it may never occur to him to seek out recognition at all. But, but it's important to him. He, he enjoys the experience. And even if it did, did occur to him, you know, he probably wouldn't know where to start or why it would even matter to his life. That's something to think about. Now, here's the real lesson. Whether you are ever recognized as an Einstein, a Michael Jackson, a Ty Cobb, a Mark Twain, a Michelangelo, a Sarah Teasdale. The reality is that the real reward is in the experiences themselves that you are having, not in the recognition or designation. Nobody ever has to designate you a hero or a genius for you to be a hero or to be a genius. Heroic just is what it is. Genius just is what it is. No matter if anybody else ever recognizes, recognizes it as such or not. A heroic, selfless act does not cease being so just because nobody else ever sees it occur. And all of your efforts, by the way, toward escaping emotional unhealth are nothing less than than incredible and heroic. Just think of the legacy you will be leaving. Just think of the accomplishment that, that you will have achieved that so many people do not. A masterpiece work of art does not cease being so just because it gets lost to a house fire. It still existed. It still was. The person still did that, whether anybody ever knows it or not. A masterwork of poetry still is, whether it ever appears in a book for others to read or not, it's still a masterwork. A flower in a prairie, which will never be seen by human eyes, is still beautiful no matter what. And that's how I choose to bring this episode of the Last Symptom Podcast to a close. There are valuable, worthwhile things in this episode, even if nobody ever went on to hear them, right? The value is still there in the information, whether it is ever acknowledged or not. 
Have a nice week, everybody. This is Brian Barnett signing off. As always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.